Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Paul M., Jared W., and Jerry B. On the show today is a new guest, David Aram. David is co-founder, senior executive vice president, and director of Sandstorm Gold Royalties, a mid-tier gold-focused royalty and streaming company with near 200 royalties and streams covering precious metals and base metals. Sandstorm is listed on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol S-A-N-D and also on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol SSL. David, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Let's get to it here, and it's great to have you on. Out of the gate, how is the market looking from your screen and your candid thoughts on gold and silver prices here? Well, obviously, we're in in very remarkable times and and a unique position with very little precedence behind it. But um, what we're seeing, and I think what I'm seeing from, from uh, what's happened in the in the last few months is really a, a, a very quick acceleration of I think a scenario that we at, at Sandstorm have believed something was going to happen. And of course, I'm not talking about the the health crisis, current health crisis, but really with uh, the scenario related to the overall debt and debt to GDP ratios and uh, central bank issues and currency issues that I think have really come to the forefront here. Uh, in dealing with the uh, with the health crisis, um, so you know we're we're seeing these really remarkable debt to GDP ratios. I, I think in almost every jurisdiction around the world, uh, which are completely unprecedented and, and really put into concern. I think of investors worldwide of really what's where where are we going to find asset classes and, and how are we going to invest in such a way. In order really just to preserve wealth, um, it, it, I think that's the overwhelming message that I've heard both from uh, resource investors and, and people that have been involved in the gold industry, but also generalists, high net worth, uh, you know, groups uh, anywhere around the world that are just uh, struggling to really figure out where and how uh, this all gets resolved and, and how What's the best way ultimately to preserve wealth uh, in these these unprecedented times that we're in? And David, thoughts on gold and silver prices here. Do you see that the days of uh, $1,200, $1,300 gold and $12, $10 silver is, is probably beyond us at this point? And just with that, can you speak to the market panic that happened during March with COVID and the initial sell-off and deleveraging do you see that happening again if we go lower in the broad market with physical gold and silver prices? Yeah, I mean, those are, uh, I'll talk about really kind of that market volatility in, in my take on it. I mean, obviously, when you see that type of uh, market fallout and that extraordinary volatility that happens, there's really just in institutions and, and, 
and um, and wealth managers around the world just find themselves in that liquidity position and they just have to sell assets and you know many times there's not that many buyers obviously because there are many of the buyers that do have um, wealth and, and dry powder available are, are not buying so could we see uh, drop-offs like that yeah for sure you know maybe, you know are, are we going to see a, a 1200 or 1100 gold price or you know a 12 or 13 dollar silver price we could i think that would be a very very temporary uh scenario and uh, likely like we saw in march probably bounce back much quicker um very quickly over the medium and longer term though in terms of speaking about precious metals and gold and silver in particular you know i think it's we've almost certainly never had situations that are as favorable for seeing those prices go up and really establishing at a new level when when you look back to 2008 and 2009 and and the subsequent years of of the quantitative easing that occurred uh, during those periods you really saw uh, a tremendous, uh, you know, new level being established in, in really where gold is. And the quantitative easing programs that are in place right now are being talked about uh, are so much larger than really what was put in place there. So we can certainly, I think it's very, very reasonable to expect that gold and silver prices are going to go up. And they're going to establish themselves at a much higher level again at some point. Um, and uh, they'll continue to go up and until they've really kind of figured out how to bring some sort of stability uh, into the debt markets, figure out how to balance off how the inflation might do work with the low interest rates. Uh, lots of kind of complicated issues that are just going to have to be worked out. And nobody knows how they're going to turn out. Um, for quite some time or, or what really what that time frame is. So, you know, like I was saying just a minute ago, everything lining up for seeing the gold price uh, establish itself at a much higher level is really happening right now. It's something that's going to continue on at least for a few years. And depending on how much worse this program goes and how much bigger that this relief program that central banks and, and things like the Fed Reserve are putting in place uh, are going to last. And all indications are is that there, there's no no slowing down in, in the additions to those programs at this point. So in the end, from a medium to a long-term point of view, I'm very bullish, probably more bullish than I've ever been before uh, in, in really where the gold and silver prices are, are headed bring up the point about going back to 2008-2009, just to quote Lennon, there are decades when nothing happens and then there are weeks when decades happen. Good grief. I mean, just the amount of stimulus in the U.S. from COVID is exactly just fulfills that statement entirely. Well, let's go on here, David. Why the royalty business? Where did you get started before teaming up with Nolan? And how did the idea of Sandstorm come together for the two of you? It's interesting. I'm actually a, a geologist by background and, and really mostly an exploration geologist at that. Uh, with a, you know, every exploration geologist needs to find other, other kind of career paths. So I spent some time doing geochemistry and, um, and, uh, and, and looking at ARD type of issues as well, too. Uh, and a little bit of metallurgy, as, as a matter of fact. But I really uh, came into the royalty space with not a lot of background in, in finance. I, like Nolan, 
it was first introduced to this through the original Silver Wheaton. So it would have been back in 2005. I was the second full-time employee after after Nolan Watson was brought in. So that was a good 15 years ago now that we uh, uh, we ended up meeting and we ended up working together and understanding what this royalty and streaming business was. And and despite the fact I didn't have a lot of finance background. I realized almost immediately that this was a space that I wanted to be involved in really for the rest of my career because it was so much easier, you know, being on the exploration side and on the operation side for some time. Boy, it's a tough business. It's a it's a tough industry. It's tough to get these mines, find these mines. It's really, really tough to uh, to get them working and uh, and functioning properly. So worked at Silver Wheaton for some time. Uh, we saw really kind of how that was functioning. Uh, it was a great business model, but you know, Silver Wheaton was very, very focused on specific types of deals that they were looking at. You know, it was kind of in a, a slow growth period after the first three or four years of of operating. So uh, we really uh, left to to look at other different options, and uh, that's when we started thinking about well. You know, what about deploying this model in a variety of different ways and, and on different types of projects and, and in, in, in a different way than what uh, Silver Wheaton was doing it. And so that's really where the, the idea for Sandstorm came up. You know, one of the things that we've done in, in the royalty and streaming business, and now Nolan and I, you know, we've, we've been the head of a company more than anybody. And I, I believe we've done more streaming and royalty deals than, than any other management team has. And that's evolved, you know, because it is a relatively new part sector in the industry. That's evolved over the over the years, and as a result, uh, we've made changes and we've looked at things differently. But one thing that we've always kept in mind is this idea of the upside and exploration upside, and and how that really is um, the true value. That's really how you create a good stream is by uh, finding these streams and royalties that have that that tremendous link to the exploration upside. So, um, you know, we've we've changed our targets, we've changed our strategies sometimes, but the one thing that we've kept consistent is this idea of making sure we access projects and and pro and and assets that have that tremendous link to the exploration upside. So, um, I think ultimately, if you were to boil down what Sandstorm is and what we're trying to do is we're trying to accumulate assets that have that best link to upside that's going to tangibly um, affect MPV of existing shareholders. So what we've been really successful at over the years is finding streams and royalties on assets that have a seven to 10 year mine life and very soon, they see that mine life go up to 10 to 15 years and even beyond that. Um, and that's not easy because uh, you really kind of uh, have to access projects in a different way. You have to really have your pulse on what's happening. You have to reach out to these different, uh, reach out and look for these streams and royalties in a much different way. But when you do tie down these projects, you know that, that upside that can get realized by your shareholders is really immediate and it's substantial. And that's what we're trying to do at Sandstorm and, and what we've always been trying to do at Sandstorm. We've just gone about it in a couple of different ways uh, over the years. How is working with Nolan? How important is he to the business? And any stories about Nolan that you'd like to share, David? 
<laughs> well, you know, Nolan is, it really is remarkable. Uh, of course, you know, he was, I, I believe he still is, and, and, you know, he was the youngest CFO of New York Stock Exchange listed company at 26 years old. And that really is remarkable because that's when most people are really just starting their careers and starting to kind of find something uh, interesting or niche, even the very successful people, you know, at 26 years old, he was already in probably one of the fastest growing companies on the NYSE. He was the CFO of it and right through its huge expansion period, um, you know, really thrown into the fire, but but succeeding, uh, you know, wildly succeeding. So it, it's been really extraordinary because, you know, having working so closely with somebody like that who has such a, um, a, a, a really amazing combination of skill sets, because obviously he's, he's known as his finance, but, you know, he really has a great way of understanding uh, uh, structure of a deal, what makes sense, and, and the valuation, which I guess to a certain degree comes from um, the finance background uh, and the education in finance, but also really understanding the legal aspects, understanding really how to negotiate a contract effectively uh, while bringing in all different aspects that you want to do it. And of course, he's a, a very quick learner himself. I've done what I can to help try and educate and give him I think the high points and important parts of, of on the technical basis, but I've really learned a, a tremendous amount from him over the years of his um, his ability to really kind of bring all these important elements of uh, deal structure, of contract structure, of the finance structure, and really valuation, and even that interpersonal aspect of really trying to figure out what's going to get you. To what you need and how do you get to that point and how do you negotiate that as quickly as possible because in the end in the end you know what i've learned too from him is many times the, the timeline is a risk the longer your timeline stretches out on any aspect is brings more risk to being able to complete something and to complete something successful and of course execute on your overall strategy for the company. So it, it really is remarkable. You know, every time I think anybody has a conversation with them, they probably come away with thinking of something, you know, really interesting or some new aspect or, and um, so you do find a lot of people that know Nolan that have been colleagues alongside of him. He gets a tremendous amount of inbounds because he has that unique idea to really kind of look at things from a different perspective. Many times I kind of, I liken him and I make an analogy that he's really sort of the, he's the, the, the Beethoven or the Mozart of the finance world. He really kind of knows how to see uh, a whole different parts of what an orchestra might be and how can, they can flow in and out of them to really kind of combine them and bring them up into this big crescendo at the end, um, which, um, which is really a, a, a remarkable skill set. So uh, for me, you know, I'm uh, I'm I'm glad that he's he's found value in the relationship with me because uh, certainly it's there's been tremendous value for me uh, being associated with him. Yes, and there's a lot of components that you guys, all of you, bring to the Sandstorm engine to make it work well, and I think that that's also important. And appreciate you sharing some of your insights on him. I want to talk about Podmodden in a moment, but can you just give us an update on Sandstorm generally as far as objectives completed so far this year and the plans for the company going forward into 2021? 
Yeah, we've kind of been on a on, on a pretty steady steam of, of a strategy for the last two years or so. And a lot of that is really just building up and kind of picking up uh, good cash flowing assets. You know, for us, uh, because we have so much growth in, in Han Medan um, over the next couple of years, uh, we've been really focusing on good quality cash flowing assets. Uh, because what one of the desires that we have in the strategy that we have is to boost the percentage of our existing NAV uh, that's cash flowing. Because I think that's a big important part of understanding how we sit in relative valuation amongst our, our peer group. Um, because we are, uh, you know, we've got great growth, growth so probably the best in the industry or in our sector. Um, we we have a good set of assets. You know, I'm I'm really pleased with how the assets have turned um, out and, and the quality of the operators and the low counterparty risk that we have. Um, but what we do have is we have a low percentage of our NAV that's cash flowing today relative to all the other groups. Most of the other groups in, in terms of the other royalty and streaming peers, they have between 80 and 90% of their NAV. Um, in, that's cash flowing today. Uh, we've been there and we know that, and there's an easy correlation to see that as that percentage increases, you see your valuation increase. So for us, we've got a great base of assets. We've got great growth um, in existing portfolio. Uh, the key uh, is really to uh, find some more cash flow today. Uh, or cash flow that's immediately going to kind of come upon us. That's that's the way that we can really reward shareholders is continue to find those good high quality uh, projects in the portfolio that are going to have that exploration upside, better cash flowing today. So that's a clear strategy that's been with us. We're really happy about how that's played out over the last two years. Um, we are in a good position right now and we're honestly we're really itching to get another deal done and we certainly think that's achievable before uh before the end of the year and substantial you know we have we've got a lot of capital available to us we've got at least 350 million dollars available to us um we're in a net cash position right now we don't have any debt on the balance sheet but we have a lot of credit available to us too um and so Relative to our market cap, our market cap sits really close to around $1.5 billion right now. We have uh, certainly over $350 million available for us by the, the end of the year um, to make investments. So that's a significant amount of capital relative to our market capital. So, um, you know, that, that could, if deployed effectively, could have a real meaningful impact uh, on on really some of our, I think our, our our valuation of the market, and I want to come back to talk about that uh, some of what you guys are planning to do and what you're looking at in a moment. But I want to talk for a moment about a cornerstone company asset, Hadma Den. Give us an update on the project. Will construction be commencing on time? And speak to the importance of this asset, including further exploration and expansion success, which of course we've seen a little bit of that recently. Yeah, listen, it's a, it really is a remarkable asset, this Hanmedan. I and mean, we first really learned about this at the end of 2015 and, and really the start of 2016, uh, as we picked up a, a, and purchased a suite of, of royalties from, from tech. So tech, and it's kind of one of his predecessor companies, Kaminko, has had a, a long um, 
activity and period of exploration in Turkey. Uh, and so they picked up a lot of bun a bunch of royalties, but on this one particular project that would really just release some pretty remarkable drill holes. Uh, so uh, we got involved in that and, and started seeing this project evolve rather quickly because it was really getting, uh, you know, coming up with some extraordinary data on on what they were discovering. Uh, and uh, we were really, I think, right place, right time, and saw an opportunity there and really jumped on it as soon as we could. Because uh, for me, as a geologist, I can kind of really, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to expect to be able to stumble upon and, and kind of see a project like this evolve maybe once in my career um, of, of really such high quality. Uh, and so, as uh, we started getting to know the project more and more, and then ultimately we took over the company that had a 30% interest in the underlying asset. So here we sit today with that 30% interest. Um, the, our, our partner who has the 70% interest is a Turkish company who's um, developing uh, this project in, in Northeast Turkey. It's very close to the uh, border with Georgia and very close to the, the Black Sea. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, but it's um, it's uh, really kind of going through what I, I think ultimately is the boring part of of your development curve, which is really the permitting and the feasibility study. So um, while this project has great, will likely have great economics and it has extraordinarily high grades and a, and a nice, very consistent ore body, um, it's uh, it's uh, it's got a lot of ounces associated with it. It's got a lot of copper as well too, uh, even though that's secondary uh, to the gold uh, that they see coming out of it. Uh, but it's a project that's going through feasibility studies and permitting right now. Uh, now they've had a little bit of a delay because they were not quite through the data collection period of the feasibility study. Uh, and as a result, they've, they've had to leave the area physically leave the area from doing some of the data collection. Um, they are hoping, we haven't got a timeline as to when they can get back on yet to the property to continue that data collection. So that will delay the feasibility, but also the EIA, which is um, the primary permitting document. So it's had a little delay on that aspect. We're assuming that still we'll get a lot of those things completed, the EIA filed, and the feasibility study done by Q4 of this year, uh, which would be about a two-quarter setback of it. Um, that's not necessarily the real uh, critical path item. I mean, obviously it's very important, so you will need that before you really start effectively uh, any significant type of construction. Uh, but there may be some early works that they can begin by the end of the year, depending on really how uh, the whole system uh, comes together. Uh, and, uh, you know, Turkey is, a, is a, I think, a, a remarkable country. It's, it's had a tremendous amount of growth over the last uh, 15 years. Uh, it has a, uh, a tremendous amount of quality infrastructure built throughout it. I think a lot of people don't realize that um, Turkey is probably the highest quality infrastructure building that you'll find almost anywhere and they uh, are very good at it. It comes at a very reasonable price. Um, they've, they've done a very effective job of growing over the years. Now, 
you know, there's a, there's a lot that's an entirely different discussion to say what's really happened at that senior uh, senior government level. Um, but the one thing you can't really argue with is the ability and effectiveness that Turkey has grown at, uh, and how they they have developed an economy uh, over over not just a few years, but over really kind of 15 to 20 years. Um, and we've come to understand our partner well. They're a, a, a large private company, uh, and they're doing a, a great job of developing this. They're partners with other Canadian companies, mining companies in Turkey. They have, uh, a, if you look at the greater part of their conglomerate, they have operations all the way from Central Asia out to the Balkans uh, and are looking to move into parts of Africa as well, too. So they truly are an international company as well, too, with um, with good good profit margins associated with them on on almost all parts uh, arms of their their operations and of course they've worked very well with the the Canadian mining partners that they've operated and and are associated I think with currently the most successful projects that are operating in Turkey on the mining side so but that asset is is going through that development phase um, and they're taking a very pragmatic approach they've been working on with uh, obtaining the social license from the local communities. Uh, they've done a great job. You know, that's been their priority from, from day one is making sure that the communities, uh, both the local ones, the sort of the uh, provincial ones um, and the federal community as well, uh, understands their project and understands what they're trying to build. Ultimately, you know, the mine is, is relatively small. You know, despite the fact that it, it should be producing greater than 250,000 ounces of gold equivalent per year, it has a relatively small footprint. Um, you know, it's it's underground only. It's uh, They're producing a concentrate. There's no use, absolutely no use of cyanide. Um, so it's a rather benign type of project. It's, it's kind of uh, small to medium in size for an underground mine, looking at around 2,500 tons per day. Um, and uh, it it really has, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of the drawings from what the infrastructure looks like in, uh, in the feasibility study. And I do certainly realize that it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, Certainly, it's a it's a really a, a small footprint. So they've been working very closely the entire time, trying to keep everybody informed as to what this project might evolve into, and it's gone really well. And it's reassuring to have a partner that's thinking about that because for us as investors who tend to be passive in almost everything, um, it's important for us to to find partners that are thinking about that because. You know, if, if a community isn't happy about a mine operating in that jurisdiction, it's going to have a lower, a small chance of, of lasting as long as we hope it's going to be. And, you know, this has been a priority for us all the time looking at any investments is to find, find groups that are want to make sure that their project is sustainable, make sure that the, the local community is happy with it, the local community is going to benefit from it. Um, and um, we've got a partner there that's spending a lot of time thinking about it uh, and working towards that end. So we're confident that it's going to have a good impact in the local area. We're confident that they're making all the right choices as the operators of this asset to, to push it forward.
you know, we still think the timeline is fairly intact. It's, it's a good estimate to think that construction will start in 2021 of some sort of degree. And by, uh, it should be about uh, one year build or a little bit over a one year build. So assuming 20, end of 2022 or start of 2023 production, uh, right now is still realistic, I think. So we'll, we're, we'll keep on that timeline. But of course, we've had this kind of wrench thrown into not just Turkish projects, but I think projects all around the world uh, as to seeing how they, they end up getting built. So we'll, uh, we'll have to continue monitoring that. And we'll let everybody know if there's any further delays to the overall process. And talk just a little bit more, David, about the terms that you guys have there, the ownership requirements. Speak to that, what Sandstorm might be doing on the financing package for the construction on, on how that might work. And then also speak to the expansion success. You know, you, you mentioned probably have, I think, if I have my numbers correct, this is somewhere around an eight-year mine life as currently proposed. But I think that you probably see that there's quite a bit of expansion potential there. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So uh, in terms of uh, maybe we'll address that first, uh, you know, this is a project that they they found the ore body and really focused on this main ore body um, uh, primarily. And because we've got this private partner, you know, they're, they're sophisticated financially and, and from a return on investment. Once they saw that they, they had a great ore body to start on, really the focus was is to get that asset into production and cash flowing. Um, you know, the overall ore body itself is really, it's about, uh, it's about 400 meters long. It's about 300 or uh, 400 meters deep. It's about kind of between 40 and 80 meters wide. It sits very close to the surface, if not really kind of at surface as well. So in the end of, of it's remarkable to really kind of believe that there's, you know, over 3 million ounces of resource uh, plus in, in just on the gold side on in that in what's a relatively small discrete ore body um, from the geology and technically you see that it is offset um, there's likely your chances of finding some material similar uh, to the existing ore body is pretty high there's also the south zone which has had uh, you know the other zone of of some focus drilling on it which now uh, more recently is is starting to see some better developments it's never been part of the mine plan it's never been assumed to be part of the mine plan but with some more work on that potentially it is part of the mine plan in in the future uh, and then of course this relatively discrete ore body which kind of spans over about eight or 850 meters of drilling it sits within a seven kilometer alteration zone and that alteration zone we know has gold at surface we know it has copper at surface we know that there's geophysical anomalies we know that there's geochemical anomalies you know many of the indicators that pointed to the discovery of the main deposit at Hamadan, those same indicators exist on multiple targets in a variety of places along this seven kilometer alteration zone um, there's also this Russian, old, old historic Russian mining zone to the south, because of course this was part of Georgia and was part of Russia uh, a little bit over a uh, hundred years ago now. And that really has not been investigated as well as it needs to be or deserves to be at least. So there's a lot of, I think, low hanging fruit to be examined 
Um, the operator, our partner on this, you know, they're very focused on, on, on looking at this first and getting this project into operation. But I really see the potential there of finding more material extraordinary. And that's the one thing you have to realize is that if you do find more of this main ore body, just a, you know, around a 75 meter extent of strike that you find of this, for every 75 meters, you might find another million ounces of gold equivalent in that. So that's really the extraordinary thing about this is that if you, you start getting lucky on the drill bit and you find some, uh, some offsets of that main ore body, boy, it's, uh, your answers add on really quickly. And, um, in, and in terms of it from, from a geologist and looking at this project from an exploration perspective, you know, rarely have I seen a project that clearly was such a large system, a large system that deposited this, this very, very high grade project and so prolific amounts of, of kind of gold, you know, almost all the drill holes, the remarkable things is that whether or not you're out of the deposit, you still get some component of gold, some component of copper, some component of zinc on more of the, the hanging wall side of it. Um, and that's really exciting because what that tells you is just, it expresses the, the size and the power of the system that deposited the main deposit. And of course, as, as, as most people know, is that you know, your best place to find more of this high-grade material and more mines is right beside where you're, you're finding the existing high-grade material. So that gets us really excited. Um, and um, you know, there'll, there'll be exploration that kind of happens, a little piecemeal, piecemeal, but I think the focus for our partner is to get the project uh, well into construction, if not operating, before they really start spending some some time and effort on that further discovery and exploration. And that's what gets us really excited: is that there's a there's a lot, uh, probably a lot. There's a lot to be chased after, and there's certainly a lot that deserves some exploration attention uh, in the future on on the Honda Dam project. Now, in terms of really kind of where our ownership sits, it it is, I think, an unusual piece. Uh, to own for a royalty and streaming company. But I think it's one of those things where we had an opportunity to, to uh, obtain this piece and um, it wasn't gonna last. There was a small window open for us to be able to obtain this. Um, and we knew it was gonna look a little bit differently, but honestly, you gotta do that. If, if you see those opportunities and, and you realize that these opportunities are only gonna be, pop up once in a while, if we hadn't chased after this, and if we hadn't purchased this 30% interest in it, honestly, I would have—I probably would have spent countless sleepless nights uh, over the rest of my career thinking, boy, what a mistake it was not to chase after this when you had the opportunity. And I'm, I'm certainly really glad that we did. Uh, and the way it works is we have a 30% interest of this uh, Turkish entity. Um, our partner, uh, Lydia, made in Chilek, owns a 70% interest. Uh, there's a really good agreement, uh, ownership agreement uh, within this, which establishes that as the project goes into production, uh, they make all the decisions, uh, they figure out how to finance it. Um, once it starts producing and dividending out uh, the profits, uh, there's a really defined formula as to how the dividends get paid out. Which means, you know, the way we look at it and the way I kind of look at it is that, okay, well, you know, once we actually, because it's so high grade and the costs are so low on this project, 
you know, once you get the initial capital paid back on the asset, in the end, it really looks a lot like a typical stream would look like, uh, especially if you assume the copper pays for a lot of the costs. If, if you assume the copper is going to pay for the bulk of your costs and your capital, that really means that uh, based on the pre-feasibility study, uh, that means that your, your ongoing cost per ounce is uh, of gold produced is about 100 to $150, including the cash flow. So, sorry, my son just, just jumped in on the conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's the problems with working at home. Even closed doors don't really do you a whole lot of good. <laughs> he was amazed by that cost you just mentioned. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so anyhow, you know, it really is it has an ongoing cost, about $100 per ounce. And if the project has produced between 170,000 ounces and 200,000 ounces of gold per year, you know, it's, it's a one-year payback on this project potentially even a little bit less. So, you know, you're seeing 30% uh, of that gold would go to us for about $100 per ounce as an ongoing cost. So it really is, you know, the ex, you know, the, the, what makes it special is just the economics are so special on, on the asset. And the way we look at financing it, you know, what Lydia has talked about as a partner, they, they I think uh, the, the overall CapEx build is approximately 300 million, could be a little bit underneath that, but it's a good number to kind of start with. So um we know that you can finance projects like that uh from bank debt uh for about 200 million dollars at the project level which means that the overall equity contributions by both parties is 100 million and with our 30 percent ours would be approximately 30 million dollars or so uh, and that's really kind of right from pfs going all the way forward to uh full production on the assets so um uh, you know, what we're kind of assuming at this point is that our, our further outlay of capital outlay is probably going to be around $30 million total. Uh, there will be debt at the, at the asset level, and that asset will pay back that debt. And, well, at today's commodity prices, honestly, it pays back about nine months or so. Uh, it really has that those types of economics where, you know, we could start seeing 30% of that gold production at $100 to $150 per ounce uh, about nine months into the production of the asset and then start reaping the, the benefits of the exploration that they put on top of it. So it, it's it really is. It's a special project. Um, and uh, it's something that I'm really looking forward to seeing it progress uh, and seeing it get into operations and ultimately seeing the seeing the exploration additional exploration that's going to happen at the project yes and you guys made a good choice on the partner the partners relationship in turkey with the government with the social aspects community aspects etc so i think that that was a, a good election on how that's been arranged and why you guys got involved i think that probably weighed into your thought process on that speak to just a moment um how you guys are going to take your portion of that are you guys uh, purely dealing with receiving dollars in that respect on that project when we get going uh, will you guys be taking gold out of that how's that going to work as far as what you guys are going to take out of that well right now it, it the way it's structured is uh, the typical thing would be dividing out uh, proceeds of of the sales uh, so the entity in Turkey itself would sell what's going to be a concentrate, really. Uh, and so that concentrate gets shipped off to, you know, where it might go around the world or even potentially in Turkey. 
Um, but there's no problem really kind of dividend capital out of there uh, and, and results out of there. Now, there's always the idea of being able to restructure this uh, in different ways. Uh, and that's something that we've been spending some time thinking about, um, which may result in, in actually obtaining the, the physical from it. Buybacks, dividends, park the cash in gold. David, speak to where where and how the strategies will be employed with excess cash at this point in the cycle. Does it make sense to park some of that cash in physical gold savings for purposes of currency risk, as we've recently seen with some of the dilution that's occurred as a result of COVID, and for those future opportunistic events that we know will eventually come again in the natural resource sector? Really, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about capital allocation and that sort of thing. And, and actually, even coincidentally, just um, in terms of really kind of post Q1, you know, we've we have held some back some of our sales, which is really the first time we've ever done that uh, of some of our the physical product that that we end up getting delivered on some of our streams and royalties. But right now, we think probably the best capital allocation for a period, of course, we were doing a share buyback, which we think made a lot of sense. And I think it has paid off well for shareholders. Um, right now, I think the, the right capital allocation is, is really buying more deals, buying more precious metals streams uh, and deploying capital that way, uh, most effectively over the next year, at least. At that point, you know, once we've deployed, and like I said, we have, I think, before the end of the year, at least $350 million available to us uh, through cash flow and credit lines available to us. We would like to deploy that into effectively gold in the ground, which I think really kind of points to that idea of really kind of holding back. For us, that's probably, I think, the best way to allocate capital. Uh, once we get through that, uh, and if we get through that period of, of making those acquisitions of gold in the ground, then yeah, we'll spend some time thinking about really what it means to. And I think it's going to depend at any given time. Certainly now that we've done an effective buyback program, we do have to start thinking about uh, uh, becoming a dividend paying company at some point, because we really, one, one of the things I think that makes us a little bit remarkable is that we haven't paid a dividend so far. But we've always really seen ourselves as an aggressive growth company. Uh, we still see that right now as ourselves as an aggressive growth company. Uh, but maybe after we deploy capital successfully, maybe we kind of go into that next phase, which means um, thinking about uh, paying back shareholders through dividends, looking at share buybacks if we think it makes sense, and, and then also looking at, at acquisitions. You know, in the end, I think we we've always tried to uh, look at that formula and look at that equation is that, okay, how, you know, at this snapshot in time, we have capital available to us. What's the best way to do it? You know, does it make sense to deploy it on this acquisition A? Does it make sense to deploy it on share buyback program? Or is it time to really kind of move it into that dividend? You know, up to this point, even though we haven't done it, we've considered it a number of times in the past. We've always thought it, you know, decided against it because we think that capital allocation makes more sense doing it one of the other two ways. Um, but we'll continue to really kind of, I think that formula has worked for us in terms of that evaluation. Uh, and that's what we'll do in the process. Now, some of that might mean really holding back gold sales or, or, or silver sales at some point. Um, right now, we're looking at that, but really only on a temporary basis. 
um, but but you never know in the future if that's uh, that's a strategy that we might want to deploy. And I would just say the buybacks may make sense when valuation is just in the company's favor to justify buying back shares. And then, of course, I think the dividend piece is also maybe it starts out small, but I think you can capture additional market participants as a result of starting small with dividend and starting a dividend strategy that ramps up over time with as your guys' assets, more assets come on. And then also, I think that uh, maybe you can speak to this for just a moment. Obviously, the opportunistic deals are still important, even at this stage. Is your guys' longstanding opinion that at some point, as you guys build up the bank balances and the savings uh, start to build up, that some of that savings, I think it's prudent for wealth protection purposes to remain in some of the metal? Yeah, listen, that's always a strategy you're, we're, we're going to have to consider at any given time is just really figuring out how we deploy that. I think, you know, we've we've never been in, we've been cash accumulators when the market's been good with the idea of really kind of making sure you can deploy it at those right opportune times. And, and in the end, you know, Sandstorm has been good counter-cyclical, good source of counter-cyclical capital. I think for both gold companies and base metal and diversified companies. And as a result, you know, you always want to make sure that that you are going to be ready for that because it, you know, obviously these things happen very, very quickly. So you do have to spend some time thinking about making sure the balance of, okay, yeah, how do we preserve wealth instead of, you know, instead of keeping the wealth that we have as a company in dollars, keeping it in actual um, products uh, like gold. You know, I think my favorite thing to keep it in overall is really um, ounces in the ground of a good investment that I think we've made uh, in terms of uh, a new stream and a royalty deal on these projects. So, you know, that's that's the favorite way for me to really kind of keep that value because you think of how we deployed capital to obtain something like Han Maden. Yeah, that's a tremendous amount of, of upside that we see for that. But even other royalties like the Hyundai royalty that we purchased, you know, that was a great opportune time um, to to make that investment into the ground. And since then, you know, the, you know, the investment for us was in the $37 million we put into that uh, that transaction, I believe. And within the first, you know, we haven't even had that that royalty for 18 months now. But Endeavor, the operator, has spent over $40 million in exploration on that. They've found you know, millions of more ounces. They've already extended their mine life from effectively a seven uh, or eight year mine life out to uh, 13 years plus. And that's to me, is a great way to make that investment because we're getting the upside in those ounces without paying a single penny more into that. Um, and that's the, that's the great benefit of when you can deploy these your capital into those great streaming and royalty deals is that you know all of a sudden ounces show up uh, attributable to sandstorm where you've you've paid nothing for it uh, and and that's really the power of, of how well this model works so for me that's the favorite way to really kind of you know you talk about capturing the, the you know protecting your wealth through gold but the you know a great way to really protect by holding gold, great way to do it is, is to hold, um, you know, hold these royalties on projects that are going to see some sort of expansion and exploration because those ounces come 
and you get them for free and uh, you get the, the direct benefit and the sale of those things for free. In the case of things like Hyundai or Santa Elena or Arizona, you know, these are producing assets that get a tremendous amount of exploration on them. And that turns from, you know, drill holes to resources, to reserves, to actually material and ounces going through the mill and getting sold. Uh, and that comes back to you sometimes in the matter of years from drill hole and discovery of those ounces as to actual gold delivered back to you. So that's my favorite way to really kind of look at this and, and think about that holding that gold investment is, is just to continue what we've been doing, which is ferreting out and finding those, those, those great stream and royalty investments. Yeah, good points, and certainly the placement of it in ground. If you can store store in ground, if you have that ability to do that, obviously that makes a lot of good sense as well. Well, let's move on, David. Let's talk uh, about where management is looking for deals as far as the stage of company at this point. I'm sure you guys have plenty of deals on your desk for consideration at this moment, and you guys are wanting to do more this year. Speak to the stage of company you're looking at, uh, project profile, maybe jurisdiction. And then I just want to tie this in about competitiveness uh, in the market, David. Are you seeing that there are stiff competition from peers uh, looking at similar deals that what you guys are fighting for? Can you just kind of talk about that? Yeah, it, we're pretty laser focused right now. What's I, I think what people have seen is the gold space has gotten quite frothy, you know, for the first time effectively since 2012, we've seen capital flowing into the gold space on a variety of different levels on the producer level and, and even some developers in that uh, exploration companies, which is the first time we've seen that in a long time. And to be honest, that's where we've seen a lot of our competition in the past is that equity just coming in, uh, our capital coming in in the form of equity uh, in, 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 in these, these spaces. Um, that being said, you know, there's plenty of still gold developers, uh, that are looking to put together financing packages. Um, you know, there's not a lot of debt available or debt products available, uh, especially to the single asset developers that are out there. Uh, so that's an aspect for us. Uh, and although we see more equity coming in, the, the, you know, we still might be able to find some deals and we are looking at deals that are, that are in that space. However, the real opportunity I think is at the base metal and diversified sides. You know, we've seen the price of base metals really drop out and get really negatively affected even prior to COVID, but certainly by COVID, we've seen it drop more. Uh, and the, the prices of industrial metals and base metals, the pricing of them is firmly in the camp of the speculators as opposed to the fundamentals in terms of supply and demand. You know, you look at things like, like copper, certainly there's... A, a very strong case to be made that um, the demand for copper is, is going to far outstrip the supply. However, it's being priced on the basis that there's an upcoming worldwide recession. And uh, despite the fact that probably demand is still going to outstrip supply, uh, speculators are really pushing the price of that down. And that's been difficult on those base metal producers and those diversified producers as well, too, as this presumption that there's a, a long drawn out recession ahead of uh, the world effectively. 
which means that we're starting to see again balance sheet pressures on those um, the whole range of companies, all the way from the small base metal producers up to the largest diversified companies, seeing that uh, really uh, that, that pressure ramping up on it. And so, to be honest, I think that's where our eyes have been diverted to, and probably the rest of the streaming capital that's out there is really looking to help remedying some of these producers, which honestly puts you in those best positions. It's like 2015 all over again, where the same sort of thing. We saw a number of large diversified companies struggling to figure out where they were going to get additional capital that they need from. And as a result, a lot of really great streaming deals were created on world-class assets um, that you were getting precious metal streams that were byproduct from these large base metal producing mines. Uh, and so that's where our attention is really focused on right now is, is chasing after those deals. And for us, that's great because we do occupy uh, uh, an interesting space, whereas Franco Nevada and Wheaton are very, very large companies looking for very large deals, and they have a lot of capital to deploy. Uh, we're kind of in that space where those those anywhere from 50 to $300 million size streaming deals, not terribly interesting to those larger groups, but very meaningful to us and can have a big impact on, on really what our growth looks like in the future. So um, that's been great. Um, you know, we, we, the competition that we typically see, you know, for certainly the other royalty and streaming companies, their competition, you have to understand, but, but we've worked with, with the ones that have that large amounts of capital available to them. We know the management teams well. We understand how they, they look to invest and they understand us as well too. So we, we, you know, we can, we can guess right where we're going to fit in when we see opportunities pop up and, and, and what's going to interest some groups and what isn't going to interest other groups. And so what we have seen is that, you know, debt is not as readily available to these groups. And that, I think, would be our, our biggest competition right now is trying to figure out what the restructure, debt restructure looks for these groups. There's certainly very, very little actual equity capital going into those projects and into those companies. So that creates a great field for us to compete, I think, really effectively. And despite the fact that, you know, people have seen the gold price run tremendously and it's in, in many jurisdictions, it's at all time highs, not in the US, US dollars yet, but in many other jurisdictions, it's at all time highs. Um, so uh, I think many people would assume that there's, there's too much competition. We can't effectively get deals, but that's, it's simply not the case. I think we are. We do have the opportunity to still get really high quality deals, exactly what we're, we're really trying to look for and what we think is going to pay off for shareholders in today's current environment. Yes, I agree. And there's certainly a good set of reasons to be looking at base metals right now. You mentioned copper, certainly. For example, let's use a smaller realm, if you will, the Tosicos of the world. They're trying to finance Florence in Arizona, their copper project there. And we've seen some challenges on just the financing. And you're right, the liquidity of getting capital is, is dried up from, from traditional debt channels at this moment in time. So I think you guys are looking in the right area. David, maybe you can speak just a little bit more to this portion of it. Who do you like in this business? And when you guys look at deals, 
how important is the management team? And would you say that management team is king? For sure, it's really important. You know, the interesting thing about what we're investing in and what we're looking on, like very often our investment into an asset because they're so ultra long-term, they often outlive not just the existing management team, but the existing company. We've, we've seen the ownership of many of our important streams and royalties change more than once in, in some cases. Uh, since Sandstorm has been around for the last 10 years. So, so for sure, you have to spend a lot of time thinking about management, the existing management team, and their capabilities, their ability to either build this asset or continue operations of it or, or move it forward or, or, or evolve it one way or another. Um, but even more than that, you have to really kind of say, okay, is this project, you have to understand well, how are future management teams going to deal with this? Because it probably, you know, over the time that Sandstorm owns it, they, almost certainly you'll see at least one other management team, or perhaps, you know, like I said, one or two other companies actually own it. And so, how are they going to react to it? So, you have to spend a lot of time anticipating and trying to use our experience um, to say, you know, how is not not just how is this project going to perform now? How is it going to get built now? But you know, how or who, of course, who we don't know in the future. You know, I don't know what future management is going to look like, but if they're a reasonable management team, how are they going to deal with this asset? What's it going to mean to them? How are they going to treat it? So we spend a lot of time trying to understand, you know, the qualities of this asset when anybody evaluates that uh, existing management or future management how, if they're a reasonable management team, how are they going to evaluate the opportunities ahead of them or deal with the risks uh, that are associated with it? Um, so probably more than almost anybody else, certainly more than I think your, your typical equity investor would think about it, uh, we think about what are the long-term implications of this project in, in a number of different things. But you know, management is first and foremost in the immediate stages because they're the ones that are that are going to figure out how to make this this work. And that's the nice thing and the interesting thing about Sandstorm is that we've, I, I think, done a good job. I think when we started out over 10 years ago, we were considered the streaming company of, of the juniors. But I think what we've done is we've done a good job of really kind of finding those low quartile, uh, lowest quartile producers done a good job of finding those management teams and finding projects and being associated with the projects that are going to end up in the hands of really capable management. And where we sit today now is that we're seeing close to 90% of our current production comes from companies that are either mid-tiers or seniors. Um, we're also seeing that we're, of our existing portfolio, um, we actually have uh, the lowest cost operators currently of our partners. So we've decreased our counterparty risk tremendously uh, over the years. And then when projects, some of the projects over the next two or three years get up and operate, including Hamadan, you know, we're, we're going to have the cheapest, the lowest operating portfolio by a long shot of any of our, of our peer group. Um, so that is, you know, that it's a really important point is to making sure that counterparty risk is, is going to look low on your projects, not just today, but in the future as that project evolves and gets purchased by, by other companies or ends up in the hands of other management teams.
I want to just talk a little bit more about counterparty risk in the context of jurisdictions. And I think it ties in with management team's ability, which probably takes a little bit of precedence over the jurisdiction when you have the proper management team that can do the right things with that jurisdiction. With the financial panic that is occurring across the globe at the moment and across currencies, we've seen the dollar continue to be superior at this point, even though we've seen substantial dilution as we've discussed. With the dollar leading the way at this moment, David, and access to U.S. dollars as a potential growing concern, how comfortable is management with their counterparty portfolios and dollar-challenged jurisdictions and the concern for how payments and foreign exchange is handled for governments seeking dollars? Can you just speak to that for a moment? Well, you know, that's not a part that I'm a real expert on and how that works. I mean, in in the jurisdictions that we're we're really focused on and seeing our production from, I mean, most of our cash flow today really comes from North America. And so the second area is really kind of South America. Brazil is kind of a jurisdiction where we see a lot of it coming from. The concern I think is is less. And as you know, when you when you talk about U.S. dollar swaps and really how these companies in these assets perform in these different jurisdictions, and as we kind of see the COVID effects on the economies, various different economies around the world, you know, to be honest, the, the way I see the biggest shock to are the economies that I expect to be shocked the worst and by the fallouts of COVID are things like Canada, the U.S., and, and, and Europe, uh, you know, the, it, because those are the jurisdictions that are kind of going from these, you know, low single digits unemployment rates up to 15% and above unemployment rates. Um, whereas some of these other jurisdictions, some South American ones, and even something, you know, take something like Turkey, for instance. You know, Turkey is a, a jurisdiction that over the last 10 years has had an average unemployment rate of around 13% or so. Well, the forecast, current forecasts, is that the worst it's going to get through COVID, post-COVID and post-COVID economy is 17%. So that kind of shock to the unemployment rate clearly is not going to be as high as it might be in Canada, going from a you know a three or four percent unemployment rate uh, to a 15% unemployment rate. So you know when you when you start talking about these sorts of U.S. dollar denominated debt in these sorts of things, you know, some of these jurisdictions potentially have the ability to, relative to the U.S. dollar, kind of compete relatively well and probably keep that debt in, in at least no worse standing than I think the A-class jurisdictions you would call of the world like Canada and the U.S. and, and perhaps even China can be grouped into that as well too. You make it some good points about the unemployment rates, uh, you're absolutely right. I think that the fallout effects in places like the United States, Canada, are, are certainly uh, appear to be much more uh, profound than some of these other jurisdictions. That is absolutely correct. Well, David, let's move on here. Uh, just wrapping up with a few more questions, and I appreciate the amount of detail and, and the discussion. I, there's a lot here, and, and we only seem to talk about once a year or so. So Smith Weekly Research has two royalty companies, Sandstorm, and Mavericks Metals. Speak to the competitor companies out there trying to match the Wheaton, the Royals, the Francos of the world. Why is Sandstorm superior to both the larger and also the smaller companies in the space? It really has to do with the overall portfolio and how we've accumulated assets over the years. So 
when you take a look at the larger group of companies uh, and the larger peer group, you know, we've got a great growth profile. Compared to them, ours is, is superior. We're seeing over 100% production and gold equivalent ounces increase between now and uh, 2023, which uh, nobody else is even close within our peer group relative to that. Uh, but we've got still a good diversification from a lot of different assets, and we're trading at that uh, lower valuation. And, and, and like I explained towards the start of our interview, you know, a big part of that is really just because um, the, so much of our growth is, is actually there and, and our lower percentage of our NAV is cash flow. So even just over time, if we were just to sit on our hands as a management team, not do anything, we'll see that valuation increase because we're not going to be trading at nine times EV to EBITDA by 2023 when Hamadan gets up and going. We're going to have a better valuation than that. So even if we just did nothing, it would go up. But in the meantime, if we continue to be able to do the deals that we've done in the past, will increase that valuation. So it really makes, I think, a lot of sense amongst that. And then in terms of really kind of the smaller companies, you know, what we've we've put in place is we've got this great assemblage. You know, your risk-reward ratio is, is good. And that optionality really is still there. You know, when you take a look at a rising commodity price environment, um, especially on the gold side, you know, what we, I think we're very clever at doing and, and we're successful at doing uh, during the periods of call it 2012 all the way up to 2018 was accumulating these royalties because optionality at that time in our industry uh, was, was worth nothing. And we went out and accumulated big packages of royalties. And, you know, you take a look at you know, there's royalties that we picked up on things like Loba Marte and, and these other things, you know, these are extraordinary projects that will turn on in a higher commodity price environment that will contribute, you know, up to $20 million per year in additional cash flow to us. And that's meaningful. You know, one of the things that we like to show people is that in 2023, you know, what, what do we look like instead of a $1,600 gold price, what do we look like in a $2,000 gold price? And sure, you get those existing 27 assets that are cash flowing, you see more cash flow that comes from them. But what's not as obvious is that projects in the background turn on. And with us, without us having to contribute any additional capital, we're seeing cash flow from those projects and a lot of cash flow. You know, Some of these might cash flow $9 million plus per year for us without us having to put anything into us. And, and for us, that's really that, you know, that's the type of optionality and things that you want to, you, you expect to get from those super levered, high cost gold companies. But we get that with that big, strong, secure base of existing growth and cash flow portfolio that's sitting there. So I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize is the package of optionality that we have sitting in that background and those call it 160 other royalties that are, are not in our cash flow growth profile. Those ones evolve and turn into cash flowing assets. And that impact is substantial compared to what our existing, you know, combined NAV of the other cash flowing assets are. So to me, that, that makes that risk reward profile and even that access to optionality 
pretty compelling. It makes a strong argument for saying, listen, Sandstorm is a great base. Like if, if I'm, you know, if I believe in gold companies and I like gold companies, and even if I understand the industry really well, having Sandstorm as that big base, biggest investment that I have, boy, that kind of puts me in a, a no-lose scenario because you're a good defensive stock because we've got low counterparty risk and um, but you got the great growth. So, so you're going to see additional valuation increase just on existing growth profile. You've got a lot of capital available for additional growth on top of that. But then you got this wonderful package of optionality in the background, which is going to evolve tremendously in a, in a high gold price environment. And, and those underlying assets that we have these royalties on, they're going to have a tremendous amount of capital invested into them that we see that benefit of without having to contribute anything to. So it makes that good compelling argument that that should be a good base of investments, you know, um, and, and you can play around with other things and you, that means you've got portion of your portfolio that you can take a real high risk viewpoint on uh, because you know you have that, that great base uh, is situated in that gold and silver space. It's a fantastic setup, a great situation that we're in, and I think we're still early in the cycle, and there's a lot of things to be had yet. David, how are you investing in your personal situation? Maybe you can speak a little bit to that. Are you invested across some places of the natural resource market? What things do you look at, if you could share that, and is there anything that comes to mind that is highly compelling, even if you want to talk about, you know, you like copper here, you like silver here, Anything on the personal side you can share with investors who are interested? Yeah, no, no, certainly. I mean, you know, both Nolan and I, we, we certainly weren't rich by almost any standards going into into Sandstorm. And I, I can tell you right now that both of us still have tremendous amount of our net worth. It's, it's just invested straight in Sandstorm. But in terms of really what I'm looking at and what I'm buying, and because, you know, Vancouver, being based out of Vancouver, obviously we see a lot of different types of companies, especially on the exploration side. So I've been looking both personally and on behalf of Sandstone, of course, at a lot of exploration tech projects. Um, so I've been involved in, in a couple of even private companies as well, too, that have plans on going public uh, with, I think, um, you know, for me, my investments, I, I really even if it's, uh, especially on my personal side, but of course on, on behalf of Sandstorm, uh, the management is really important in understanding management teams and their ability to really kind of move projects forward, um, both successfully and ethically and doing just good business in general. So, so I'm invested in, in a lot of exploration companies, uh, a reasonable amount, maybe not a lot, but a reasonable amount. I, I like looking at some of the emerging mid-cap producers, you know, Equinox Gold. Uh, I've been a big holder of that for, for some time now because I do know the management really well. I, I know many of the assets quite well, too. I tend to immerse myself really in depth in a lot of the investments that I make personally, both understanding the strategy of, of really what management has got envisioned for the company and how they plan on executing on that vision uh, as much as the underlying assets themselves um, you know uh, so there's and there's certainly kind of go-to people uh, that I get involved in Eclipse Eclipse Gold is another one that's a recent public one that I was invested in as a private one but really kind of worked uh, knew the management team quite well on it so there's there's a variety of different things. I am very heavily invested primarily in 
uh, gold and then some base metal exploration companies as well too. That speaks for, you know, to be honest, that speaks for effectively 95% of my portfolio. You know, I'm not even, I don't actually even own any real estate. I don't own my own house because I, I'm so heavily invested into the resource space and gold, really gold, gold, silver projects and base metal projects. And that's kind of almost my entire portfolio, which when I say it out loud, sounds rather risky, to be honest. Well, it sounds pretty similar over here. Um, so you're not alone. Uh, but uh, certainly Equinox, a company we cover over here, a big uh, piece for us. And good insights you brought up. You know, for me personally, I also am a, a bit of a holder also with physical metals uh, as well. Taken by what you said, David, I'm assuming the time frame, you're a long-term shareholder is my suspicion. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, for, for me, it's, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm a terrible trader. I, I remember early on in my career trying to think I, I could trade stuff, but in the end, you know, uh, I, so much I've picked up at being in this royalty space is just thinking about that very, very long-term aspect is, you know, the fundamentals have to be there for these assets and how the management's executing on it. I don't really think about kind of trading things. You know, I, I, I don't, it, it's very hard for me to think of, oh, hey, listen, this is a, nice liquid name that I might own for four months, three or four months. To me, that's, that's, that's just, that's not how my brain thinks about investments in this space. Yes. Yes. And I'd point out you're a geologist. So I think that there's a longer term picture and view. And, you know, if you know the projects, you know, the ma management teams, you don't have to worry about the trading aspect at all. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the launch lab real quick, David, what is the status on the launch lab project? And is this something the audience can expect to see some increased activity coming out of? Yeah, you know, so the Launch Lab really kind of came about some of the investments we started making from, I guess they go back to all the way from 2013, 2014 or so, you know, really kind of taking a look that there's been a big structural change in how exploration companies get financed. And um, exploration companies, you know, they tend to be run by by technical people you know a lot of geologists will run these exploration companies and and they have great theories you know and they they have great success as geologists but they certainly need some help on the marketing side of things and getting the market to understand and that's one of the things that we understand that what their business model is that's one of the things that we at sandstorm started seeing is that um, you know there's not a lot of money you know these exploration companies are trying to function with not a lot of capital available to them. So it became evident to us that we could leverage off of our network of investors. Uh, we could leverage off of our expertise and really kind of understanding stories and messaging stories um, to really kind of uh, help these companies understand how they can uh, refine their message and make it easier for them to get their message out to investors and try and expand that to a, a larger base of investors. So that's really what Launch Lab was was born out of. Um, so we're really excited. We're seeing it expand on a regular basis. We're seeing it work in a lot of different variations. Uh, it's really a, a few people that are that are that we brought into the Sandstorm fold that are that are working on behalf of Launch Lab, and they're picking up a number of their clients uh, that are out there uh, right now. So. So some of the groups that have used uh, used the services are, are Condor uh, Resources, 
Um, there's a company, private company coming out called Vomai coming on top of it. Uh, some of the other groups, some private companies that are going public are have taken advantage of of using those services as well too. So we've it's it's expanding and certainly I think you'll you'll start seeing it more and more um, as as it comes out. But really it's it's certainly a way that I think Sandstorm can spend some time saying, hey, you know, we made the investments in this company. This is why we made the investment in these companies. This is you know, and maybe. Uh, you as other individual retail investors or institutional investors, maybe you want to take a look at it for some of those same reasons as well too. So it, it's been good, and I think it's it's a productive, and it's I'm glad I'm glad we've got this this up and operating because it certainly has been a a value add for some of the the groups that we've made investments in ourselves. And the audience, can they still go and sign up uh, to receive information on what you guys are doing on that? Yeah, for sure. So they can find it through the Sandstorm website, but they can also look up the Launch Lab as well too, and uh, and sign up for information and, and uh, try to be part of that. There's a bunch of people uh, in that group that are that are working to really kind of refine it and, and uh, get the right people on the on that list. And talk just briefly about long-term strategy for Sandstorm and yourself, David. Are you and Nolan looking to stay on for decades to come, or is Sandstorm open to Takeover transactions. Well, listen. I mean, yeah, I think it's all depends on the context of it. I mean, we love doing the royalty and streaming business. We think it's a great winner, and I want to do this all the time. Of course, it, it all about making sure, in the end, shareholders getting the right valuation and doing the right thing for shareholders. So, my vision right now is that we've got a long way to go with Sandstorm and not interested in, in takeovers or being taken over at this time because there's a lot of good growth and meaningful growth to shareholders that we think will really pay off for them. But you know, it, it, it's all determined by really what happens in the market and how things evolve. So I, I certainly can never say never to being a, a takeover target. It's all going to be dependent on what we think we can deliver as management team and, and what other offers might be out there. I would more lean to the idea that I think that opportunity for us to be taken over companies is there. We've taken over a number of other royalty companies in the past. And if the right valuation happens in the right time and it works out well and it makes sense, you know, we'll do that in the future again too. But it, it's, it always comes to, you know, the snapshot of time. It's like what's happening at the time? What's the vision? Where, where do we think we can deliver that maximum shareholder value? At one point in the future, that may be takeover, maybe being taken over by one of the other companies. Uh, I don't certainly don't see that right now. But as, uh, as responsible management, you certainly can't rule that out. Yes, yes. And you guys are in a great position, whichever way you decide to go from here down that path. David, for potential investors who are listening, or even those looking to increase exposure to the Sandstorm brand, why should they consider Sandstorm at today's prices? Is it a rounding error near still the bottom? What would you say to them? I think even at today's prices, we have a compelling valuation. I think not just against the other streaming or royalty companies that are out there, but also really the mining companies. I mean, if you look at real true free cash flow, we still trade at really good valuations compared to other gold producers out there. Um, so the compelling argument is there today. But 
looking at the bigger, broader picture of really where we see the gold and precious metals, gold and silver prices in particular going, boy, it, it's very compelling. And it's hard, you'd be hard pressed to really kind of find a scenario on the macro scale that's been greater for, for encouraging gold prices over the next several years. Um, and owning a company like Sandstorm really kind of gives you the best of, of all worlds if that's the scenario that plays out uh, because of the growth that we have and because of that tremendous optionality that sits uh, in the background that's bought and paid for. And for our ability to really execute, you know, we've, I think we have demonstrated that we were capable of getting some of the best deals, if not the best deals that exist, exist in the space out there. So from both, I think a current view of comparing to peers today, but also from a macro picture, that Sandstorm really presents itself as a great way to access that upside in an effective and a, a proper risk reward ratio as well too. Agreed. And how can investors reach out to learn more about Sandstorm and to get in touch with management? Well, listen, we've got a great website. We've got a lot of information on there, but we're all reachable as, as management teams. If you go through the website and contact investor relations, in the end, we're a small company by employees. There's less than 25 of us worldwide, period. So I've got a clean flow to anybody who's getting information or getting contacted through the investor relations line or the website. So it's very easy to, to get a hold of, of us as a management team, and we're happy to talk with shareholders. Well, David, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for the update on Sandstorm and continuing success to the team and stay well. Yeah, very good. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. It's, uh, it was a great conversation. I'm happy to have the chat today.